the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. America Invaded could guide your voting decisions. Watch it now or buy the DVD at SalemNow.com. That's SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land... We unleash the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. All right, it is indeed Always Right Radio, AM 1420. The answer. Appreciate you being with us on this Monday morning. It is the 26th morning of the month of division in the year of our Lord, 2024. Eight minutes after the hour of nine o'clock. We've got a special show lined up for you today. Um, not only do we have Jim Jordan, that makes it special because we talked to, it's not special in terms of uniqueness, but it's always special to have the chairman of the Judiciary Committee on the program. He'll be with me at 935, and we have a lot to discuss, uh, including what he says is a new whistleblower down in Georgia. In Fannie Willis's case, a whistleblower in Fannie Willis's office, could this be uh, the takedown of the rogue prosecutor and her boyfriend that she used to essentially uh, uh, set up Donald Trump in these uh, in these bogus charges down there in Georgia. Uh, is this going to be what takes her down? She's facing perjury. So is Wade, Nathan Wade. They are all in very, very serious jeopardy. And Jim Jordan says there's a whistleblower who's going to bring more to light. And so we're going to talk to him about that. We're also going to talk to him, of course. Uh, about the biggest news of the morning, which is Ronna McDaniel of the RNC stepping aside. We'll get to that momentarily. Uh, we'll talk to him about whether or not the impeachment inquiry is dead now. Does it have to be because the primary informant is being indicted or it has been indicted and is facing a uh, number of charges um, uh, with respect to lying about what he has learned about the Biden, Burisma, Ukraine, uh, Shokin, uh, China, Romania, bribery allegations. If he lied about some of it, does that mean all of it is dead? Jim Jordan will answer those questions at 935. What well, makes it a special show 
is we're going to have two candidates for Congress in our studio. We are still working, right, Seth, on uh, getting Senate candidates, uh, Bernie Marino and, uh, and Frank LaRose and Matt Dolan, into the building, right? Uh, yes, we are. Yeah, we are, let's see, today's the 26th, so we are about, what, four days into early voting now. Obviously, March 19th is the actual election day, so there is still a little bit of time, but we want to do it. Considering more and more people appear to be voting early, uh, in these elections, you know, because this is what they've done. You know, we kind of have to adapt. I've talked about this in uh, a number of different on a number of different shows uh, that we have done. Where if we don't adapt to the new way of electing people and running and holding elections the way the Democrats have, we're going to get steamrolled. We're just going to get like you know, we're going to get run over. This is what happens. And so. I remember in the August election, the August special election, I was telling everybody, people, for the first time, you know, get out, not for the first time, but, you know, with, with, with any vigor, I was telling people, including you, go vote early, go vote early. It's 30 days of early voting. We cannot wait until game day, which is election day, to try to make up for all of those points we lost over the last four weeks. So we have to get out there, and I made the football metaphor we got to get out there and vote uh, in the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, all four weeks of the 30-day early voting period so that we are kind of starting on game day, uh, meaning election day, which, again, in the metaphor, would be kind of the two-minute warning now. Now it's the last chance to get as many things as you can done in the last uh, moment here. But we do it from uh, a place of, of, you know, of equal playing field or a level uh, playing field, something of that nature. Um, so I bring that up only to say that we're going to try really, really hard to get these three Senate candidates into this building. Uh, we're still going to be reaching out to Matt Dolan's people. He uh, They reached out to us last week, and we're still trying to establish that connection. But uh, LaRose and Moreno have indicated a willingness to come in here, and I'm looking at three chairs, well, two chairs, but three microphones, and uh, we can do this. We can uh, pull in another chair, I'm confident, from another studio and make this thing happen. So that's what we're working toward. But today we're going to do it with the two candidates in the um, uh, District 13 congressional race. And I'm talking about former state senator and former state representative uh, Kevin Coughlin. He will be in our studio with us, as will current Hudson City Council representative or city council member, rather, uh, Chris Banweg, who is also a Marine Corps reservist. Um, So these two guys are going tooth and nail. I had them both. I didn't. Chris Long had them both uh, live at the... um, Freedom Banquet this past Thursday evening, and uh, really, really got a good chance to listen to them. I kind of conducted a bit of a, uh, I don't know, kind of a a smaller version or a scaled-down version or a low-key version of a debate in which I gave the same questions to each of them to talk to the crowd of 200-plus conservative Republican supporters uh, in the room there. And uh, so I got a pretty good idea of who they are and what they are. But now we're going to go much more in depth. We're going to have them for an hour, starting at ten ten. Chris Banweg will be across from me, as will Kevin Coughlin, and we uh, intend to learn a lot more about them. The winner, of course, of that uh, primary fight is going to face Amelia Sykes for that uh, longtime Democrat district seat, and so that'll be that'll be very interesting. Then we'll spend the third hour kind of reacting to it, if you like, and uh, anything else that you want to do. That'll be your hour. So Jim Jordan coming up here at 935. Kevin Coughlin in studio with Chris Banweg, the two opponents in the Republican primary, will be with us at uh, 1010 and then you at 1110. So that's how the whole thing is going to shake out today. Phone lines will be open at 216 What the hell? I'll open them right now. i got time. 
216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Either one of those numbers will get you here. Now, before we talk about Rana being out and what that means moving, moving forward, it's a big day. It's a really big move. It's not unanticipated because we reported and a lot of people uh, found out that Rana McDaniel was going to step down as RNC chair after South Carolina. Well, South Carolina came and went, as expected, a big victory for Donald Trump over Nikki Haley in her home state. She's not leaving for whatever reason. Uh, you know, Ron DeSantis saw the handwriting on the wall. Uh, Vivek saw the handwriting on the wall. He was never really running anyway. Uh, but you understand the point. Nikki is just going to continue to make Donald Trump work in the primaries and thus take away his ability to focus solely on Joe Biden in the general. And that is a problem. That's a problem, I think, for anybody who's really looking at this with any modicum of common sense at all. So before we get into all of that, what do you say we pledge? Patriots, go ahead and stand and face your flag. Put your hand on your heart and join us for this. If you are a believer in surrendering sovereignty and surrendering the freedoms that have made this country so great, in other words, if you're a left-wing, radical, Marxist Democrat, well, don't pretend you like the country by standing for it, uh, for this fly, uh, for this pledge, rather. Just take a knee so we can identify you as the Marxist that you are. For the I rest of us... Allegiance to the flag. Go ahead with it. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty... And justice for all. So Rana is out. It is official. Uh, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal in, in a couple of different ways. Um, some of them more prominent than others. Uh, and, and I'll explain that in a moment here. But Ronna McDaniel, who has been, and I didn't realize this until now that she has announced her resignation uh, as RNC chair. Uh, this ahead of Super Tuesday, by the way. She's leaving on March 8th, on March 8th. She's in the midst of her fourth two-year term. This makes her the longest-serving chair of the RNC since, um, did I see this right? I'm looking for it to confirm that I thought I saw this this morning, since the Civil War. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, she was the committee's longest-serving leader since the Civil War. I was right. I did see it. Now I'm looking at it in Breitbart. The niece of Utah Senator Mitt Romney and the former chair of the Michigan GOP, was Trump's hand-picked choice to lead the RNC shortly after the 2016 election. So, And that, by the way, is one of the two significant points that I wanted to make on this. Um, it is very, very clear that the Republican Party is in a tailspin, an absolute tailspin. And many people wanted her replaced after the failure of 2022 for the red wave to uh, you know, have taken place. It was a very, very underwhelming performance. We got a very, very teeny, tiny majority in the House. It was great to get the House back. And I remember trying to put as positive of a spin on it as I could when we just barely won a a very razor-thin majority rather than the red wave. And I complained, obviously, about what we could have had, but I celebrated and put the positive spin on it that we do have still now subpoena power. We have chairmanships of the committees, and we can actually do investigations that are meaningful. Um, You know, So I was glad to see that. But we did not win the Senate, obviously. We went from a 50-50 to a, 50, a 51-49 uh, uh, Democrat, one-seat one majority. And a lot of people said Ronna McDaniel's got to go. Ronna McDaniel 
did not prioritize the fundraising for the right races. Ronna McDaniel did not lead this body, this uh, Republican uh, committee and its uh, slate of candidates to to victories. And uh, a lot of people questioned her ability to to do so. I was one of them. Uh, it was a disaster, and and the reality is, um, we continue to suffer and struggle. The, the, I, I saw another article this morning. I wonder if it's handy. Let me see if it's nearby here. But I saw another article this morning that uh, it was on a Democrat-leaning uh, uh, website, which, of course, is almost all of them. But um, it basically said that Trump is the reason for Democrats' nationwide success, meaning the Dem- I won't focus on the Trump part of that. Of course, they're going to bash Trump. But they are touting their nationwide success, that they have won so many battles. They win things like the New York fight for uh, George Santos' seat. They flip that from red to blue. Uh, they just continue to uh, to poke holes in conservative Republican uh, strongholds, if you will, and start to turn them purple and into blue. And somebody has to be acknowledged as the, the reason for that. And Ronna McDaniel is that person. So... The, the the negative of this is that Ronna McDaniel is leaving right before Super Tuesday, and it puts the party in, I don't want to say chaos, but it's not ideal, is it? Going into Super Tuesday in a race with an extraordinarily, or I shouldn't say a race, in a campaign period in which the leader of the biggest race, the current incumbent president of the United States, is in an extraordinarily bad place, a historically bad place poll-wise. We ought to be licking our chops and salivating at the opportunity before us to replace him to win a significant majority in the House and to get a slim majority in the Senate. This should be where what our focus is right now. We should be looking at this and going, oh, my gosh, we are just, you know, uh, uh, you know, keeping our powder dry and waiting for, you know, the battle, man, and let's go because this is ours to lose. This is our fight, and it's our time right now, and instead we're changing leaders. Right before Super Tuesday. And again, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't, because I just think it should have been done a while ago. I'm probably after 2022. I have decided to step aside at our spring training on March 8th in Houston to allow our nominee to select a chair of their choosing. She said the RNC has historically undergone change once we have a nominee, and it has always been my intention to honor that tradition. Some people are going to call BS on that and say, no, you're being forced out. It's not about tradition, and it's not about uh, because there's going to be a nominee in history. It's going to be because you have led a very, very underwhelming, uh, you know, Republican Party uh, platform and and election cycle over the course of the last couple of elections. So this is not about tradition. Don't 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 do that. But it does beg the question, and that question is: if she is going to leave, that means somebody else is going to come in. Does Donald Trump? deserve the right to pick that next uh, next uh, uh, chairman of the or chairperson of the RNC. He chose Rana, and again, things have not gone well. I mean, truthfully, since 2016, things have not gone well. Under her leadership, under her direction, and again, she was the hand point or hand picked uh, uh, a point person for the RNC by Donald Trump. After 2016, when Donald Trump won. And we won a majority in the uh, in the House and in the Senate. We had a real opportunity there. Um, from that point forward, quite frankly, everything has fallen to crap. We won in 2016. We lost the uh, the majority in 2018. Then we lost 
uh, and you know uh, uh, more of the you know the the majority, if you will, in 2020 and the presidency. Now we all know that the presidency, I do not believe, was was taken away from Donald Trump on the up and up. We all know that it was a stolen election. I will never ever come off of that. The more I see the evidence, be with my with my own two eyes, I don't care how much spin the left tries to put on it, and I don't care how much spin the media puts on it. Quite frankly, I don't care how much spin the, the uh, moderate and rhino Republicans put on it, because many of them are still saying, no, it was... Did you see Newsmax? Newsmax! Newsmax has become the conservative cable television network of choice for people who got tired of Fox going all rhino-y, Right? I mean, Dr. Gorka does a show on Newsmax, um, and it was supposed to be like, you know, hey, this is this is the um, uh, the alternative to what used to be conservative uh, or or at least fair minded uh, cable television, cable news with Fox and um, Newsmax. Over the weekend, I saw a story where um, one of the prominent hosts on Newsmax declared that the election in 2020 was legitimate. And Joe Biden won fair and square. This was Newsmax, not Fox. Which begs the question, where do we turn now from a cable news standpoint? I can promise you, you can turn here to conservative talk radio and make sure and you're, you're going to get unapologetic truth. But if you're looking for it on cable news, I mean, that was a pretty stunning decision by, by Newsmax to allow one of their hosts to go on there and essentially say, no, it was legitimate and it was, and it was fair. Uh, and Trump lost. So regardless of how you feel about that, we did lose, and we did lose the majority. And then in 2022 is our chance to come back with a with a vengeance and take a significant majority back in the House and maybe win the Senate back by a seat or two, and instead we lost. We lost a seat in the Senate, went from 50-50 to 51 to 49, and then again we had a very, very slim, razor-thin majority on the on the House side. And people are wondering, well, when is some leadership going to change if Ronna McDaniel was Trump's choice and Ronna McDaniel has led us to failures in one election after another, after another, after another, should Trump get the right to pick this one? Donald Trump has currently endorsed North Carolina's GOP chair, uh, Michael Watley. He's the general counsel for the RNC. Maybe he'll be great. I don't know. I'm just wondering, though, I mean, President Trump, for all of the great things he did when he was president, the one thing he did very, very poorly, very poorly, was appointing people to very uh, uh, positions of high power. And I'm talking about cabinet level, from secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, to even press secretaries, for crying out loud. I mean, over and over to the to the FBI director, he chose Christopher Wray. You know, he chose uh, uh, Jeff Sessions as the attorney general, then didn't like that, and chose Bill Barr, then didn't like that. Uh, I mean, and chose Ronna McDaniel. I don't know if President Trump's strength is in personnel decisions. But he wants Michael Watley to be the chair, and then he wants his daughter-in-law to be the co-chair. Um, Laura Trump to be co-chair. I don't know if that's a, I don't know how, I don't know how to take that. I don't know how to, I don't know how to receive that right now. But Ronna McDaniel getting out is a good thing. She it needed to be, be done some time ago because Joe Biden is a, is more vulnerable right now than really any president of maybe the last five decades. Going back to probably Carter, I would say, I think he's more vulnerable than, than anybody. He just got his latest Gallup poll, 38%, down three more points, one point off of his low. He's at 28% approval rating 
on immigration, which is the number one issue for the American people, according to surveys of all uh, uh, types. In other words, not just Gallup, but all of the different pollsters. They say immigration is number one, and Biden has a 28% approval rating on immigration. It begs the question, what kind of IQ do the 28% have? But moreover, it's this guy's this guy's lost, particularly when it comes to immigration, our number one issue. He is vulnerable. He's there for the taking down. He's ripe for the picking. Pick your metaphor. So is the entire DNC. Uh, so are their slate of candidates. So is the House. So is the Senate. So are governorships. All of these things are really in play, and we need leadership. I don't know who it should be, but I'm glad Ron McDaniel is not going to be that leader going forward. All right, you want to weigh in on it? We'll take your calls at 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. But as promised, I've got Jim Jordan waiting in the wings. We may talk about Ron McDaniel with him, along with a bunch of other things. we got a congressional fight. It's going to happen right here in front of me in our studio. We're going to have Kevin Coughlin and Chris Bandweg face-to-face. Uh, they will not fight legitimately, but they will indeed debate and uh, try to figure out who should be the uh, Republican nominee to face Amelia Sykes and flip that seat from blue to red if that's for by NHTSA. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. All right, it is uh, 9.35. Thanks for being with us this morning on Always Right Radio. We're uh, waiting a phone call from uh, Congressman Jim Jordan. And uh, we're going to talk about a host of very important things with him. But while I wait for that, I, I was when I was on my way into the studio this morning, I uh, decided to flip on the camera and do a little road rant. I haven't done a Bob France road rants in some time, but I was just listening to Kirby, uh, John Kirby, uh, talk about how this entire Ukrainian aid package is up to one man. It's up to one man, Mike Johnson. Speaker Johnson has the has the choice because if he brings it for a vote, it will have broad bipartisan support. Um, is our mic okay? Is it? It sounds awfully distorted in my head. Maybe it's just my headphones. Okay, sorry about that. Um, but it's all up to Mike Johnson, uh, because it will pass with broad bipartisan partisan support if it's a standalone bill that is uh, brought up in the House. And uh, you know, and Vladimir, or I mean, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky simply cannot win this. He said they cannot do this if they don't get this money and this new munitions in the next month. They're going to lose the war, and Vladimir Putin's going to run roughshod. So um, that's what we're told. And I, I had to ask. So I did a road rant this morning. Check it out. I just put it on my Twitter feed, which is France Rants. And I did just on the way in here. And I said, where the hell is Ukraine's Rosie the Riveter? Remember Rosie the Riveter? Rosie the Riveter was symbolic of American women and civilians who went to work in the factories during World War II so that we would have the munitions for our brave men who were over there fighting and trying to save the world in two different theaters. Rosie the Riveter and American Manufacturing turned all of their production to that. That It was a war machine that needed to be created for us to win the war. It wasn't about other people fighting for us. It was We did it ourselves. And so I'm just thinking to myself, where is Ukraine's Rosie the Riveter? Why are, what are their factories doing right now? They're not able to produce any munitions. They're not able to produce weaponry. They're not able to produce missiles and, and, and rockets and whatever else they, that they need. I mean, in all seriousness... Why is it up to us? It is not our war. Do we sympathize? Yeah. Do we support them? Yeah. Do we want them to win? Yeah. Do we hate Putin? Yeah. Are we concerned about Russia? Yeah. All of those things are true. But it's, why is it not up to them first, and then we'll chip in a little bit? We've already chipped in, of what, $130 billion? Now they want another $60 billion to go? That's more than just a little bit. 
All right, I do see Jim Jordan is on the line right now, so we'll come back to that conversation. Hell, well, you may even have part of that conversation with Congressman Jordan. <laughs> Congressman Jordan is uh, the 4th Congressional District Representative. He is the Chairman of the House Judiciary Committee as well as a member of the, the uh, um, Oversight Committee. Congressman, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Bob. And I, I would just add, you know, what is the goal and how do we measure when we've achieved it? No, no one has been able to answer those two fundamental questions. And, and that's why I think the American people are saying, time out. You know, we want everything you just said. We, we don't we don't want Russia to prevail. We want them to lose. We, we understand what they've done is terribly wrong. But come on, tell us how we define victory. Tell us what that victory looks like. And no one can give us that. And then when you step back and think about all the money we put there, and Ukraine is a country of 40 million people. Russia is a country of 140 million people. Um, how is this going to play out in the end? So let's figure out a way to get this, this settled. And what does that mean? And, and how does that look? And, and that, to me, should be the focus versus, oh, we just got to keep sending money there. Because if we keep doing the same thing over and over again, we know we're going to get a different result. I, I just don't know how that works. Yeah, I don't either. And, uh, you know, that's why it was a little frustrating for me. And I suppose there is some truth to the fact that it is up to Speaker Johnson. It's it's uh, unfortunate that it's going to come down to this, but it's too many Republicans, in my opinion, too many Republicans are siding with the Democrats in their view that, yes, we do need to send a, a blank check for as long as it takes to Zelensky. Uh, and so if he brings it up for a vote, Congressman Jordan, it's probably going to pass and all of that money is going to go and we're still going to be no closer to knowing when this thing ends. So w- if you're advising Speaker Johnson, what are you telling him right now? Do you want it to come to a vote or do you think you should uh, say no, not like this? Well, it's it's not it's totally up to the speaker and, and he can decide whether that piece of legislation goes on the floor of the House or not. And if he doesn't put it on the floor, it doesn't get you. It doesn't come up for a vote short of members initiating a discharge petition and trying to go around him, but that's a long, cumbersome process, very, very rarely done. It could be done, potentially, but it takes time. So, yeah, this is totally up to the Speaker and whether you know he puts it on the floor or not. I, I hope he doesn't. Um, I think I think we got some big issues coming, and this is one of them, uh, but I hope he doesn't put it on the floor. Certainly not until we hear from the Commander-in-Chief what the objective is, what, 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 how do we measure success here? What is the objective? What is the goal? Yeah, what is the end game? What does it look like when it's all over? And then we'll have an idea of what we are kicking in another $60 billion toward as we continue yep. to climb our $34 trillion debt. It matters. It really does. So stay, stay on Russia for a moment. Um, Friday, uh, Biden announced, what, 500 new sanctions. I read a few different analyses of these that say they're largely ceremonial and symbolic, not really going to have a whole lot of teeth. Do Look, nobody here supports what Vladimir Putin did to uh, Alexei Navalny, from, from what our understanding is. Yeah. Um, but having said that, is it our business to be imposing sanctions on what is truly just an, an, an inside Russia situation where a dictator does bad things to his people who criticize him. I mean, Kim Jong-un has been doing that forever. Uh, you know, China does that. I mean, you know, these are all bad people. Should we impose sanctions? And do you think that brings us closer to a conflict with Russia because of this? Well, I, I, I mean, I've supported sanctions in the past, particularly right when, when Russia first invaded Ukraine a, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. But uh, it's interesting, you know, there are certain people who who avoided the sanctions, uh, namely this Elena Baterina. And, you know, I, I, I kind of like a, this this person who did business with Hunter Biden. Uh, it looks like she avoided the sanction, the wealthiest woman in, in, in all of Russia. Um, so, yeah, I, I tend to support it when but particularly when it happened uh, two years ago. But I do think you got to be smart about all this. 
And uh, I think the biggest problem, we've talked about this a lot when it comes to foreign policy, is right now the whole world knows that the, that the commander-in-chief of the United States of America projects weakness all the time. And he's just, he's just a weak leader. And everyone can see that. Everyone knows that. And to me, that's the biggest problem. So we can do these things. Uh, Biden can say things and go out and give some speech. But I just don't know that it has the impact certainly doesn't have the impact as when uh, when we had President Trump in the Oval Office. Yeah, well, I agree with that. Um, you know, and yes, he is weak, and yeah, he's trying to project strength, but like I said, I'm just kind of wondering, though, you know, I don't know if these sanctions will hurt Putin or not, but does that, if they do, bring us closer? You know, we're arming Ukraine, Ukraine is fighting back, now we're sanctioning Russia for doing something that we think is despicable, but it is a within-Russia situation. That's a, you know, that's yeah. a Russian yeah. president, uh, you know, uh, essentially having a Russian citizen killed, and while we condemn it i mean is it right for us to kind of get closer to a to an armed conflict with them over it well and does it drive them further you know there's also the the the, the broad geopolitical concerns does it drive them closer to china does it drive them closer to yeah. you know other other bad people that they hang out with like iran um so you have to i think factor all that in um and, and again um I, I, I always come back to the comparison because we didn't have so many of these concerns when we had someone who projected strength and, frankly, who took decisive action like he did when he moved the embassy to Jerusalem that sent a message that laid the groundwork for Ukraine, like he did when he went and met in North Korea and stepped across the line willing to talk to that, that, that bad guy, but also, I think, showing, like, you know, don't mess with – I mean, th- that is the big difference here. And, and again, I think so many Americans now see it, and, and, and frankly, unfortunately, I think people around the world see it. Yeah, I, I think they do, too. Congressman, last thing on Russia, and I'm going to use it to basically bring you your attention back to January 6th. Um, listen, we, you know, w- what Alexei Navalny faced, according to all of those who reported on this, is essentially being tortured to death in an Arctic prison. Um, and this is this is terrible, we say, because a communist dictator, a tyrant, uh, is torturing political prisoners. We have political prisoners being held right now, still now moving toward 1,100 days without a trial. Um, and congressmen, they're being tortured. They're being tortured. Jake Lang was able to get information out talking about what just, just happened to him several days ago uh, and many others. They are not just being kept in a you know a regular old prison and they're getting their three hot meals and they're able to take showers and live uh, whatever a prisoner's existence should look like. They are being mm-hmm. tortured in conditions that are just indefensible yeah, and right. almost indescribable. And again, yeah. I hate to put all of this at your feet but I have access to a conversation with you, so yeah. I'm going to ask you, what is Congress doing about this? Yeah, we, uh, look, we continue to press. We continue to try to get answers to a host of questions uh, related to that day and the individuals who are uh, uh, awaiting trial. Um, you know, in our system, it's supposed to be speedy trial. It's supposed to be swift justice. Uh, and that sure doesn't seem to be the case with some of these individuals. But what we're really doing, too, is, is digging into some of the things that still are kind of big question marks. Uh, my, my colleague is sort of the lead on this. In fact, we're getting ready to, to, uh, uh, to, to send some more, uh, ask for some more information, but this is relative to the pipe bomb on that day and the strange, strange circumstances that surround both of the pipe bombs, at, at both bombs at the RNC and the DNC. So we continue to try to get information about all kinds of issues relative to what took place that day and some of the, th- some of the questions that still remain unanswered. And it all, part of all of that is, is hopefully getting a speedy, uh, a speedier trial and getting, uh, getting these folks, uh, 
the kind of treatment our Constitution says that they're supposed to get. Yeah, and, and I understand the stories about the pipe bomb, and I understand trying to find more information about that day. But but at this point, I'm not worried about that day. I'm worried about every day that goes by that these yep. people are being yep. tortured. And again, we're sitting here, you know, supporting and lauding a president for showing some strength for uh, sanctioning a Russian president who tortured a political opponent to death. And yet we have people being tortured by our president and by our justice system right now, Congressman, and it's just, um, it's unacceptable. No, no, you're, you're right. And, uh, we, we continue to try to get, uh, to get some answers here. We're working on, uh, a, a number of things relative to what I think are political actions by the Justice Department, namely, uh, what they're doing to President Trump, the different things we're working with on trying to get information from Bonnie Willis from Alvin Bragg and, of course, Jack Smith and, and, and Robert Hur is coming in two weeks for uh, for a hearing as well. So we're trying to work on all those fronts where we think it's politically driven uh, actions that we see from, uh, one, from uh, this Justice Department. One specific question about that before we move on. Is there a way for you, as a chairman of the Judiciary Committee, to call and subpoena uh, the, the, uh, the chief of the Bureau of Prisons to talk about the conditions, to answer specific questions about the way these people are being treated, aside from what you just said about getting a speedy trial, which is mm-hmm. already too late, but the way they're being kept day to day and the and the torturous things that they are enduring, I think somebody needs to be testifying under oath about that, and that would be the head of prisons. Is there a way for you to? Yeah, do we've that? had some. We've had some of that. We had that in a. Uh, we had that in a subcommittee. Uh, I'm trying to remember here. Not not too long ago, where. Didn't get a whole lot of information from the individual, and we have inquired about uh, the conditions of, of prisoners uh, at the at the facility uh, a number of times, and got like a readout of all that. Um, and we can we can get that information, uh, I think, as well. Um, and then we can look at you know possibly bringing someone back in to, uh, as you say, under oath, answer questions. Yeah, that, that's what I think would make a lot of us feel a lot better about this as we continue to learn of these horrific things that are being done there. Uh, let's move to an impeachment inquiry. Is it dead? Uh, Biden defenders say that Smirnoff's arrest is proof that the entire thing, that Biden, Burisma, Ukraine, China, all of the bribery allegations that have been investigated here and all of the information that has been gained, it's all made up. It is all an entire hoax um, because Smirnoff was arrested. How do you respond to those people? Well, that's just absolutely not true because it doesn't change the, the, the four key facts that we've talked about a number of times. Hunter Biden gets put on the board of Barista, fact one, and makes a lot of money while there, a million dollars a year, fact two. Um, he's not qualified to be on the board. Uh, he said so himself, fact three. The CEO of the company that he's put on, Barista, this Ukraine injury company, asked him to weigh in with D.C. and his father, then Vice President Biden, to relieve the pressure he's under. Fact four, Joe Biden goes, conditions the release of our tax dollar. Uh, to Ukraine on the firing of the prosecutor applying the pressure to the company Hunter Biden was on the board of, um, and that would that that decision went against the stated policy of the uh, of the Obama Biden State Department went against the letter they had just sent to Mr. Shokin, the prosecutor saying you're doing a great job. I mean, so that those are the facts. Whether Smirnoff uh, uh, lies or not lies, whatever it looks like, he may have lied. That's what the FBI is saying. Uh, whether whether that that supports it or not. So those facts do not change, and it doesn't change all the influence peddling selling the access to the brand that they did. So, uh, of course, it doesn't uh, stop the, the impeachment inquiry. We got Hunter Biden on Wednesday. We have uh, Sally Painter, who ran this Democrat public relations firm that got uh, the Zolachevsky that worked with him and got him uh, the charges dismissed against him. And then, of course, in, in two weeks, as I said, we got Robert Hur, who did, was special counsel who looked at the Biden classified document issues 
he's coming in for um, for a hearing in front of the Judiciary Committee. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to that. That is uh, that's going to be very very important. Oh, now you, Bob, Bob, and by the way, sir. this Smirnoff. Here's the thing that that I think is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Why didn't David Weiss talk to the handler of this Smirnoff, the confidential human source Smirnoff, the handler of him at the FBI? Why didn't he talk to him? Why did he wait three years? Because David Weiss knew about this guy, knew about this 1023 for three stinking years. But nothing happens until July of last summer. Now, why July of last summer? What could have happened in July of last summer that suddenly got him interested in this confidential human source? Well, maybe it was the fact that the two whistleblowers from the IRS came forward and told us about how bad the investigation was. And maybe it was about the fact that they, he went in front of the judge with that sweetheart deal and the judge laughed him out of court. Suddenly then, oh, now we better talk to this guy. So I find that very interesting. Again, this, this Smirnoff, he may, have, he may have lied to him. Who knows? But I find it interesting that he didn't do a darn thing. David Weiss didn't do a darn thing. At least that's what it looks like. Maybe he did something. But all we can tell thus far is he didn't go talk to this guy until July of last year. And they arrested him not once but twice here uh, in, the last, uh, in the last couple of weeks. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. That that's yeah. that's when yeah. he, the, you know that's when the whistleblowers came forward. I'm sure that's all it was. But you're right. October of 2020 is when he first became aware of that 1023 form. Congressman, uh, you dropped uh, a big piece of news on Friday uh, about a whistleblower in Fannie Willis's office uh, in Georgia. What can you tell us about that? Well, this this whistleblower has come forward and told us that Fannie Willis was misspending. Looks like she was misspending uh, federal grant dollars. And this is this is something we've inquired about for for a, a while with. Uh, with Fonnie Willis, the DA, uh, Fulton County DA, and she's basically just given us, you know, given us the finger. We've asked her about it, and then, and then we have a whistleblower come forward. So we actually then subpoenaed documents. We got the first of those documents on Friday. Uh, of course, Fonnie Willis writes me back a letter saying all kinds of ridiculous things in the letter, but we did start to get documents because we sent a subpoena. I also thought it was interesting. She wouldn't accept service. We had to send the U.S. Marshals to deliver the subpoena because Fonnie Willis wouldn't because you can do this electronically, she wouldn't accept service. Even though we've been talking with her office trying to get information, she made us send the marshals in there. That, that just, again, I think it shows the attitude that, that this uh, Fulton County DA has. Yeah, uh, it, is, uh, it, is a crim- it is a crime in and of itself. And she's facing potentially perjury charges, is she not? She, both in she and Nathan Wade. Yeah, it looks like uh, there was a story that broke, up, I think, Thursday or Friday last week on, on the cell phone data and how that looks like it may contradict some of the things they they said on the witness stand so we'll we'll see how that that moves forward <laughs> but um the you know i mean you saw the attitude she displayed when she went to the stand a couple of weeks ago um and everyone sort of sees this has been ridiculous from the get. remember she was she was actually contemplating she sort of sent out this letter well i didn't i didn't indict these three united states senators but i was thinking about it and, and one of them was the, the top republican on the senate judiciary committee I mean, this is how ridiculous it's gotten with the weaponization of government, this, uh, uh, this, this lawfare um, that the Democrats engage in, where they, they try to use the law to go after people, not just enforcing the law, but going after people with this, this crazy RICO charge she's put together down there against these individuals. It's, yeah. it's, I think it's, it's starting to unravel because people, again, 
I think, see this for what it is. Well, and when her when her bias is laid bare and when her dishonesty is laid bare, too, with respect to her uh, paramour there and, uh, and the kind of little deal, the deal that they cooked up, it, it, it really does need to be investigated more fully. And it needs to come. The, the charges against President Trump need to come to an end because clearly there is not yep. a, a legal uh, prosecutorial reason to go after him on this. Last question for you this morning, Congressman. Ronna McDaniel has stepped down. You know, we we, uh, we won in 2016. She was presiding over the loss of the majority in 2018, the loss in 2020, the underwhelming victory that gave you the gavel, uh, or not the gavel, but rather the chairmanship and so forth, and gave uh, Kevin McCarthy the gavel in 2022. And, and so now Ronna McDaniel is gone. But Joe Biden is at his most vulnerable maybe more vulnerable than any incumbent president since uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, 28% approval rating on immigration, 38% in Gallup overall, one off of his record low. My question to you is, who is going to lead the GOP between now and November? And 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 do you, do you believe that we will indeed take back the majority in the Senate, a much more significant majority in the House, and win that presidency? Uh, I do. I do think we're going to win. Uh, I think the Senate looks great for us. Uh, you know, West Virginia is the seat we're going to win. I think we can win Montana. We have a great candidate uh, who I think is going to be our next senator here in Ohio and Bernie Marino. Um, I think we got a good candidate in Pennsylvania and Dave McCormick. So uh, Kerry Lake in Arizona. I mean, we got good candidates. She, he in Montana, as I said. So we got good candidates. I think we win the Senate. I think we can keep the House. Most importantly, I think Donald Trump's going to be the next president. And the leader of the party, regardless of who may run the RNC, the leader of the party is Donald Trump. And, uh, and, and our nominee is going to be, I think, cinched up here in, in a week uh, on, on Super Tuesday um, when, when, he, uh, when, when President Trump wins big in all those states. So that's the leader of the party, um, whether it's, you know, whoever runs the RNC is, is the RNC. And it's important. But it's not near as important as who is at the top of the ticket. Yeah, well, it is important from a fundraising standpoint, obviously. You know, the, all of those races you're talking about right now cannot be won unless we outspend the Democrats and get the messaging out there, in, uh, including yeah. including here in Ohio. You mentioned Bernie Marino, and you mentioned Kerry Lake in Arizona and some others. I mean, it's a good, these are going to be very, very close races for uh, yeah. for a lot. Sherrod Brown's a three-term congressman, as you, or a senator, as you know, so he's going to be very hard to unseat. So whoever's in that RNC chair is going to have to raise an awful lot of money and develop a strategy that's going to be more successful than the one we had in 22 and 20 and 18. Yeah, I think we can do that. Uh, I, I really do. The um, And you're right. Uh, we, we got some tough races here. We got a, we got a great race up your way. Kevin Coughlin uh, up there in that Akron district. I was up to it at the Summit County Lincoln Day on, on Saturday. Uh, I think he's candidate. in my lobby right now. Uh, he, yeah, he, he, yeah, he and Chris Bandweg, the two opponents in that uh, primary, are both going to be here doing a debate uh, in my studio here in about 10 minutes. Oh, awesome. Well, tell them I said hello. Uh, so, we, yeah, we were up in uh, there in, in Summit County, had a great event there. We, spent, we were up your way the whole the whole day. We were in Cleveland for the uh, Cuyahoga County event there and uh, at lunch and with, uh, with Bernie uh, Marino and his family. And, and then we did a nice event with Max Miller, who's doing a great job. So, um, yeah, we got some good races, but I think we can win. President Trump, remember, he's won our state by eight and a half points in both 16 and 20 when he was at the top of the ticket. So I think that's going to help us. It's going to help, uh, going to help Bernie and his, uh, Mr. Marino and his race against Sherrod Brown. Yeah, I certainly hope so. But the fact that you were up here with Bernie and I didn't get a call, it must have gone straight to voicemail or something. That's, uh, that's my, <laughs> uh, Congressman, no, it's always good to see you when you are in district. Maybe next time we'll make that happen. But thank you so we'll much for it. the time. We'll please, 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 sir, keep on the January 6th thing. We need to get the, yeah. b- the Board of Prisons in there to talk about what's happening to those folks, okay? Yeah. 
All right. Take care. Thank Thanks, you, sir. Bob. Appreciate it. Uh, that's Jim Jordan on AM 1420, The Answer. We'll take uh, time out now. As I mentioned to him, I said Kevin Coughlin might be in my lobby. Now I actually see him in our control room and Chris Banweg as well. So they're fighting here, Bob. They're fighting already? Already. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to have them live here after the top of the hour news. We're going to have a one-on-one for about an hour. We'll talk about everything that matters. And you know what I'm going to do? This is just kind of calling an audible right now. Um, you want to ask a question of our uh, of our uh, candidates here in this primary? We'll take calls. We'll take calls during this conversation with Kevin Coughlin and Chris Banweg. What do you want to know? I've got my own list of questions, but if you've got some too, you can fill it up at 216 For me at Pregatopia.com. This is our chance to connect like never before. Go to Pregatopia.com or click the banner at DennisPrager.com. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. All right, there you go. It is uh, seven minutes after 10 o'clock as number, uh, hour number two gets underway on this Monday. It's the 26th morning of the month of division in the year of our Lord, 2024. Thanks for being with us. If you missed the conversation with Jim Jordan we just had last hour, uh, you're going to want to hear it. A lot of important ground covered there. Quite frankly, in my opinion, not enough solid answers to the questions about the J6 prisoners who are being held unconstitutionally without a speedy trial, without access to attorneys, and in conditions that literally don't just borderline torture, they cross over into the area of torture. I'm counting on Congress to do something, and uh, we're, we're waiting to hear more from Congressman Jordan on that. But check out that interview at the end of the show today at alwaysrightradio.com, or excuse me, at whkradio.com on the Always Right Radio podcast page. And as I mentioned to Jim Jordan, uh, he mentioned Kevin Coughlin. I said, oh, you mean the guys out in my lobby with Chris Banwig? Uh, the two candidates for Ohio District 13 in the Republican primary are here in studio to have a, a little one-on-one. I won't call it a debate unless you guys want to fight, but, but a candidate forum in which we kind of just try to highlight what makes your uh, campaign a little bit different from the opponents and, uh, and, and give people a little bit of an idea of who's better positioned to win this seat and turn this longtime blue seat into a red one. So Kevin Coughlin is a, a longtime Ohio State legislator. He has been in the Ohio House. He's been in the Ohio Senate, and now he wants to go to Congress. So, Kevin, thanks for coming down, down to the studio. Thank you, Bob. How are you doing this morning? All right. Very good. Thank you. Chris Banweg is a Hudson City Council uh, member, and he is a uh, Marine Corps reservist, and uh, he also wants to go and represent the people of District 13. So, Chris, thank you for coming in. You doing all right? Yeah, thank you very much, Bob. It was nice. A little closer to that mic, if you would, so we can make sure everybody hears you loud and clear. Uh, It was an interesting night uh, the other night, the Freedom Banquet, uh, in which you guys both were able to talk to 200-plus hardcore conservative patriots, I think, who were there at the Ohio Christian Alliance. But we want to reach more people now and maybe talk about some of the things we talked about then, but a little more depth since we have an hour together, as opposed to the shorter period of time we had there. So... um, why don't we just start with um, kind of the way we started the other night, though. And, Kevin, just give us a thumbnail sketch version of why you want to get back into uh, legislating now and why at the U.S. House. Right. So I left the Ohio Senate 13 years ago, and I've been running a business ever since then. And uh, I've been very concerned about the unraveling of our social fabric in this country. Um, the fact that our federal government seems to not be focused on the issues that people care about that are affecting the long-term health of our country. Uh, that nobody in Congress, I mean, we elect all kinds of people to Congress from different backgrounds with great stories, but nothing ever changes. 
And um, I, at, at some point you ask yourself, uh, when you have a, a record of getting things done uh, in the public sector, uh, you ask yourself if you can contribute anything and you have anything to say. And I think right now, at a time when the idea of America itself is under attack, both here and abroad, um, when our institutions are failing, when our federal government, our agencies are intruding in our lives, in our churches, in our businesses, uh, more than ever, um, and really, I think, making us less free, and Congress is doing nothing about it, um, that that's the critical place to be. And so Ann and I, um, you know, are, we're, we're kind of empty nesters right now. Um, we, we've been looking at it and I can talk specifically about why I zeroed in on Amelia uh, Sykes in, in another question. Okay. Uh, Cause that's a good that. story. But, um, it, it, right now I think that the critical issues of our society and America's future are, are at the federal level. I, that's where our deficit is. Uh, I, I've always been a state based person. I think states are the most important level of government. Uh, and that's where you can really make a difference. But, um, right now I think I can make the most impact at this level on these issues and that's what okay. the need is okay chris bandwag uh you're new at this you have not been a legislator so you're aiming high to start right to congress well, i'm sorry take that back you are a member of hudson city council let us not diminish that whatsoever but this is uh rather from the state or federal level this is a pretty good good place to start for you tell us why no great uh, great question bob and uh, i know i've shared a little bit about my history before and it, it's not just a, a story but it is what has shaped me and in, in the path that i've taken in life grandfather escaped from a communist prison camp, made his way to Austria, applied for refugee status, married his fiance there, and had my dad. They were granted refugee status, and they started their life here in Summit County uh, out of three wooden boxes. Now, when I say that, it, it is what shaped my life. Growing up with that story, I very much understand what America offers, the American dream. Uh, so in my life, I've not been in the state legislature. Instead, I grew up and I went into business. Uh, business in the the real economy where we're manufacturing, finance based, or currently in healthcare. Um, today, I'm working in a Fortune 500 company to integrate 20 different businesses that we've acquired that will create jobs here in Northeast Ohio. But beyond that, it was my path into the Marine Corps that's led me here today. And one, I did that because I believed so much in what we had and protecting what we had. And at the time, it was very much protecting it from threats overseas. Now, in the Marine Corps, I've been a civil affairs officer, a counterinsurgency expert, and a government stabilization expert. So I've not been in the Ohio legislature, but I've been a part of or in advising national governments around the world that are struggling for whatever reason, violence, instability. So I've worked in both legislation, governance, judicial systems, education systems, and most and foremost, economic development, which I think is something we need most here. Now, when I was approached about this position, it had not been something on my mind, but um, having been encouraged by Senator Vance as another outsider to to take part in this process, to be a, a congressional leader, to help write the path we have as a nation, that drew me in. And I think uniquely part of the argument was I have 20 years of national defense and foreign policy experience that you don't typically get out of the state house. Okay, uh, that's a, that's a great background around both of you gentlemen, and I appreciate that very much. Um, I want to dive right into the issues, and and I'm going to uh, invite our callers, by the way, to our listeners. If you've got a question you would like to ask for both gentlemen, let's not make it specific, but whatever you ask, we're going to ask to both sides. For Kevin Coughlin and Chris Banweg, uh, please dial two one six nine zero one zero nine four five or triple eight two eight one eleven ten. Particularly if you are 
in the 13th. Uh, but even if you're not, if you're just a concerned American citizen who wants the right people in Congress to make votes that are going to affect all of us in and outside of that district, we want your questions. Um, I was just talking to Jim Jordan, Kevin, about um, the Ukraine situation. And, um, you know, and, and uh, Admiral Kirby was on uh, yesterday on a couple of the Sunday Sunday talk shows saying this is literally all up to one person as to whether or not Vladimir Putin is successful and happy because there's no going to be no defense left for Ukraine. It's all up to Speaker Johnson uh, because the Senate already passed uh, money for Ukraine. And uh, I, we know that the votes are there to pass it in the House if Speaker Johnson greenlights the vote. Um so if you guys were in his shoes, if you're in Congress, Kevin, and, and, and if you could advise or influence Speaker Johnson here regarding giving money to Ukraine to stop Putin or I don't know what, I guess maybe that's the question is what is this money for and what is the end goal? What advice are you giving the Speaker right well, now? Well, exactly what you said there is the issue. I would push back on the notion that it's all on the Speaker. I think that the most important person here is Joe Biden. What is the objective? Uh, more money without an objective uh, defined is is not a good plan, and that's all we hear from the administration. So, look, I, what if, what I, if I don't his believe. Answer, what if his answer was to stop Vladimir Putin, to stop Russia from going through Ukraine and then on to a NATO nation like Poland or something else? Because that's kind of what they say. So he'd say that's the objective. Out of all of the possible options, that's the one that I think is the most favorable and the one that I want. I don't want Vladimir Putin to win. Uh, I don't. I don't want Europe to be threatened. It's, it's directly threatening to the United States if that happens. Um, but the, but what I don't hear is if the things that they're doing are to meet that objective. Okay, so are we sending them the right uh, uh, weapon systems? If if the objective is the unrealistic objective, in my view, is that um, Ukraine expands and takes back Crimea and takes back the eastern regions. That's that's. Not going to happen. I don't think that's attainable. It's, we're certainly not sending them the weapons. We don't have the strategy to do that. Um, the unacceptable one is the exact opposite, where Russia just takes over and marches into Kiev and, and takes over Ukraine. That's No one wants that in the West, of course. So the question, I think, and the onus is on the administration. Where's the off-ramp? Where's the peace plan? Um, what is the objective in that regard? And if your objective is for for the... Uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine to be in place and for and, and for them to come out of this with, hypothetically, Crimea and Donbass remaining in, in Russia. Why aren't you giving them a plan and the equipment that need that they need to do that? All you're doing right now is stalemate. And so I think there's a legitimate pushback from members of Congress who don't want to spend more money for that and want to see where is the leadership and where is the actual plan. All right. Chris Banweg, what would you say to Speaker Johnson right now? Is this all up to him? And what would you say to him? Yeah. So first, I, I will agree with Kevin. And that is I'm going to ask you to pull that mic a little closer to you. You're taller, so it's a little low. There you go. That there might help. Go ahead. It's not up to Speaker Johnson. There is absolutely a role for the president and his staff. And I'll say that he's not the only individual. It goes to the very foundation of this type of operation. And that if we're supporting Ukraine because of the threat of Russia to Europe, why is Europe not leading this initiative? President Biden has an opportunity to draw in European leaders to take a much more significant role. And it does not come down to this one funding bill. Where is the European funding that's stepping up to maintain this? Now, I'll go even further in that these are the types of operations I've been running for the last 10 years. So that unique perspective that I've tried to bring into this position for a congressional leader is what will help us navigate it successfully. I agree, too. There needs to be an end state. 
similar to what we used to do under Powell Doctrine. And I know that's a little nerdy for the listeners who may not remember Powell's doctrine of a defined end state so that we aren't entering into these forever wars that are going to drag down our economy and sacrifice our blood and treasure for things that are not in the vital interests of our nation. I would tell you today, I think that Ukraine, yes, I think we need to be a part of the defense of Ukraine, but not to the degree that we are today. If I could run an operation in another region for a tenth of the cost to be twice as effective, I think we're in the wrong place. It is. What are we spending this money on? But you can't answer that question until you define the objectives. And we need military leaders, not political objectives, per se, to tell us that. And when I say political, I'm talking domestic. I believe we have run this as a domestic narrative to divide voters or support voters, as opposed to looking for the real objective in Ukraine. Um, President Trump has said he would end this in a day. He, he would get uh, Putin and Zelensky to a table, and they would hammer out a peace agreement. Not a win or a loss for either side, but, a, but, a, but, a, but an end of, the, end, of the, end of the war, and I don't know what that looks like. Could that be done? I, I think it could be done. I think today we've dug ourselves into a hole Russia has realized since the inception of the invasion that they cannot operate at a regimental level. They cannot conduct an effective invasion of another country. We saw that in their attack, they had a cutting off the head of the enemy into Kiev, and it failed. And it was the only opportunity they had to truly win. Now they drag it out. They make it bloody trench warfare to increase the cost and try to bring somebody to the table. And unless we're willing to put in the blood and treasure that's necessary or Europe is willing to put in the blood and treasure necessary to take back that land. We failed to take the initiative at the time. And now we have the situation that we have. Kevin, uh, would president Trump be a peacemaker here? Do you think he could bring them to a table? Look, the president is the consummate deal maker. He's a, he's a New York deal maker. So his confidence, I think is, first of all, you want a president with confidence and I don't see that in Joe Biden. Um, so do I think he could uh, be forced? Look, what what other president brought Arab countries together to recognize and support Israel in a security arrangement like we've never seen before that I think will be enhanced once he's president again? So, yeah, I think that's possible. Yeah, it's um, it, it, the, the last deal that was on the table, um, of course, was uh, highly touted by both uh, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, in which we were given all that money to Ukraine as well as the money to Israel and to Gaza slash Hamas. But it allowed um, new policies at the border as well. That, of course, collapsed because it was, well, it was a joke. Um, Joe Biden right now has, according to Gallup this morning, a 28% approval rating on immigration, which is the number one issue, according to most Americans, in other surveys. So, Kevin, we'll go back to you here. Um, should we condition any of this aid to Ukraine or anywhere else on our border, or should the border be a standalone issue, and what would you, how would you solve that issue? So uh, the strategy of the Republicans is to try to get uh, border security in this, and, and, and I understand that. I personally, my preference is for single-issue legislation. Same here. I think things that, in fact, I think there should be a formal rule in, in Congress that everything that's not appropriation, like, a, like a, a proper budget spending bill, which they haven't done in a long time, right. uh, should be single-issue, and you have straight up or, up or down votes on one thing without a bunch of ornaments on a Christmas tree. You've seen, uh, and Chris, same question to you. Um, would you would you want to condition the aid to foreign countries on securing the border, or should we have a separate standalone? Because the Democrats won't allow that, of course. They don't want to secure the border. If they did, we wouldn't have, what, 8 million, 9 million who have come in in the last three years, right? No, Bob, very true. I think these are single issues, and we do need to get back to single-issue spending so that we can raise or, or let fall these issues on their own merit. The border could be secured today. 
with the leadership that we have. It's a choice not to secure it. And we conflate the issue when we blend it with other issues that need their own discussion. So, yeah, I would keep it separate. And I think we need Joe Biden to take responsibility for the disaster that he's brought into this nation with open borders. We see the danger in our own communities. What is the biggest danger of the uh, open border? Is it because uh, you have a lot to choose from and you can pick your own. But I mean, I mean, between the amount of drugs that are coming into this country and the fentanyl, which is killing hundreds of thousands of Americans to uh, human trafficking, to gang members, to cartel members and all of those things. Crime is on, on the rise because of this as well. But the other part of this is. The number, the types of people that are coming across are not what traditionally we have seen in terms of border crossers. There, there is a four thousand percent increase in Chinese illegal immigrants crossing that border from where we were in twenty twenty one. At the same time that China is buying up just thousands of acres of farmland near American military uh, bases and outposts. Um, so I'm, I'm worried about all of those things. How do you prioritize that, Chris? Yeah, Bob, I'll tell you the most immediate things are, one, when you say fentanyl, and two, human trafficking. Those are the things that people see the most right up front in our daily lives. But probably the longer-term, more devastating effects are going to be the change to our culture. And when I say culture, what I mean is our voting culture. These are folks that have not come over like my family did and had to go through the refugee process because they were truly persecuted where they came from to appreciate the nation they were becoming a part of, integrate into it, and provide value to that nation. Uh, The folks coming over today are coming for economic expedience, and they're bringing their own culture, and at a rate that we could undermine, and that culture is the democratic fabric of our nation, we will undermine that. Now, second to our, our First Amendment rights, our ability to be as people integrated to our government, to drive the direction of our government as a people, The secondary effect is the economic. And when you bring in this many workers who, whether they're subsidized while they're here with a $10,000 credit card out of uh, New York, or they're just here and they'll accept a much lower wage off the books, with the volume we have today, we will not be able to support the economy for the average worker we have. We're going to depress it. At the rate we are, it's going to be depressed in the next couple of years, the average weight for the American working family. Kevin, your turn to prioritize the myriad of, uh, of problems that come with unchecked illegal immigration on open border. What is the worst or most concerning to you? Well, the worst and most concerning is the safety of Americans. And we see that play out in the headlines here with the young woman who was killed at, uh, down in Georgia, Georgia. Uh, and, and others as well. Um, also, you know, fentanyl and China coming in and all that. But, but really, crime, I think, is the chief priority. It's the number one role of local and state government is to protect people. And uh, you already have a culture in our larger cities of not taking that seriously. Um, and now you have the border being flown, flung open by Joe Biden and telling people, y'all come and turning our border agents into customer service representatives who now have to process these people and turn them loose into the interior of our country. I actually put in a, a request to ICE uh, to get a handle on the number of people that have been sent to Summit and Stark County. Uh, they could not tell me. They don't keep that data. So we don't even know how many people are here. And we, what we do know is that it's putting tremendous stress on our safety services. It's putting stress on housing. It's putting stress on our, our charitable community and our social services, um, the infrastructure of our country. And when we raise issues about that, it doesn't make us uh, bad people. 
you know, we get demonized. It's being used against us politically, but it's really about the safety and welfare of our country. Chris is right to talk about culture, but let's also talk about the culture of our government rewarding people who don't follow the rules. And whether it's immigration or student loans or general criminal activity, that is the trend that we see on the left is creating a system that rewards people who don't follow the rules and punishes people who do. And this is just another example of that, part of that culture of our of our governing class that we need to change. Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned student loans. Uh, the Supreme Court told Joe Biden you can't keep doing this, and he's done it, I think, four more times since the court did that. He has uh, laid out another, uh, uh, you know, $60, $60 billion, whatever, in loan forgiveness. Uh, if you're in Congress, what would you propose? If you're on the right committee, what would you propose to do about that? Well, first of all, it's a direct violation of his oath of office, and I think that in my view, it's an impeachable offense because when you when you get up there, first of all, you're so pathetic as a president that you need to um, kowtow to a group to try to get votes by doing something you know that the court's going to strike down. And then after they strike it down, you say, ah, we're going to just go ahead and do it anyway uh, without because this is something that cannot be done without congressional approval. Even Pelosi said in a press conference several years ago that the president cannot doesn't do have this. the authority to do That's that. That's absolutely right. It's all political theater. It's all political gamesmanship, but it's a direct violation of the oath that he took to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. And when the court looks you in the eye and tells you no, you don't just say, eh, I'm going to go do it anyway. So I, I feel like it's a it's a, a dereliction of his leadership and something that Congress ought to look at uh, through the impeachment process. Yeah, and you know, uh, Chris, I, 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 what I, the people I feel bad for is the 18, 19, 20-year-old who did not take out a loan to go to college, but took out a loan to buy a van and a truck or a truck and uh, and some equipment to do some construction, to learn carpentry, to learn how to you know do electrical, whatever it is, to start their own business, and they've got huge loans that they've got to pay off. Nobody's forgiven those. I mean, is this just a vote-buying scheme that Kevin's talking about? So. Absolutely. And I think it gets bigger than that in the vote buying scheme. Um, I, if I go back to the threats from the illegal immigration, right, if we recognize that there are international organizations facilitating travel for these folks to get to our border, this leftist view has referenced is not just in our own government, but it's connected beyond our government. Again, I think when we look at this, you have to see the threat to our nation as not just the domestic policies we have. But even further, so yes, if we're buying votes, if we're importing votes, if we're trying to change the very fabric of what our nation is to establish and retain power, uh, we as Americans need to be much more involved, educated, informed, so that we can use the powers before us to try to resist that. And I think that's where we want more people to be excited about getting into politics. And I don't mean running, but being aware, voting. (laughs) knowing your candidates, not just trusting what's been fed to you. Thank you, Chris Bandwag. We are in studio with... Real quick, just isn't it interesting that when Republicans think about what our base is and how we can enhance our chances, we look to people who fly the flag, who who support police, Mm -hmm. who go to church, who follow the rules. And when the Democrats look to enhance their edge, they look to non-citizens, criminals... 
people who don't follow. That is exactly that right. That says everything you need to That's know about the That's a perfect analysis of it. Kevin Coughlin and Chris Banwig are two Republican candidates for the uh, 13th District in this primary fight on March 19th. We've got another half an hour to go with them. We've done really macro and kind of federal stuff. We did student loans. We did immigration. We did foreign affairs. And we did Ukraine and so forth. But on the other side of the news break here at the bottom, we're going to ask them about specific issues involving District 13. What can be done to help the people of that district? And how do they take Amelia Sykes out of that seat and turn that red. So we're going to talk to them about those specific things <laughs> at whkradio.com. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Always right radio with Bob France on the answer. Okay, 1036, we do continue. A little breaking news just came across my screen. President Trump has officially appealed the $355 million fine slash judgment against him in that uh, civil trial. Um, which means he was able to put up $454 million, um, apparently, uh, that he needed to do just to be able to file this appeal. So that has been appealed. We'll see where that goes. This, of course, is the case in which Letitia James has said she is going to take Trump Tower away from him if he doesn't pay that exorbitant and ridiculous fine. We are in studio. We're going to come back closer to home now with uh, two candidates for Congress in District 13, Chris Banweg, who's a Hudson City Councilman, and we have uh, Kevin Coughlin, who's a former state representative and uh, state senator as well. So we asked a lot of the kind of big picture national, hey, if you're in Congress, what are you going to do for the country type things? Let's talk about, Chris, we'll go first with you, uh, what you're going to do for the people of District 13 that Amelia Sykes isn't doing, or moreover, I guess I could just ask you, what do you think the top concerns are for the residents in this district, and why are you the person to meet those? Yeah, Bob, great question, and I'll lay it out in a couple of priorities. One, which is most imminent, is the effect the border has on our communities, and that is public safety. It is supporting our law enforcement in a way that they can deal with the issues that have been thrust upon them. At the end of the day, my campaign is all about the American working family. And you can't pursue the American dream if you're not safe in your own community. And I think that applies to all of our communities here. Now, second to that is you also can't pursue the American dream if you don't have economic options. I think we need to get away from as much foreign funding as we've done and get that money, the dollars that come from the sweat and the work of our American families, back into our communities, either through permanent tax tax breaks to the middle class or reinvigorating some of those programs like technical skills into our communities. We must unleash American ingenuity. And in Northeast Ohio, we are a land of small business. And yes, so I've owned and been a part of a number of small businesses. I've been a part of microfinance and economic development. I think we need to reinvigorate those programs here in Northeast Ohio to bring the money back here that people have earned themselves and to leave more money in their pockets Now, aside from the economy, which also is linked definitely at the federal level to cease the overwhelming spending, to do that, we've got to cut the size of some of these federal organizations. I think the one that's most clear to people today is the investment in 87,000 new IRS agents. To me, that is clearly they don't know how to build the economy. They don't know how to get revenue for from tax revenue for the programs that they want to spend on. So they're just going to squeeze you harder. Never the answer. We've got to stop those types of initiatives, get the money back to the people, and free them to build our own economy. Now, finally, I'll say we've got to get the third piece of that, which is the law, back in order. 
We cannot live in a country that has a two-tiered legal system where if you have a different set of political ideals, you're persecuted by government agencies, persecuted by new laws that prevent you from being able to pursue this American dream. I will tell you the two reasons, two of the reasons that I feel compelled to be here are one, I've had the blessing of living that American dream from my grandfather to my father to me. We've been able to pursue what we wanted and create a life for our families here in this nation. And I think that what we've lost is that connection to the community and our leaders. I think what Americans want is to get back to the citizen legislator. And this is where Kevin and I will differ. I think that Americans want people who live and work in the economy to go to Washington, D.C., to volunteer, to serve, to do their job, make a difference, and then go back to the economy that they've created. I think that is what we can do for Ohio 13 is be authentic in our approach and all the legislation that we bring to our nation's capital. Okay. Um, Kevin, first on the 13, obviously, what do these dist- what do the, the people of this district need from you? Second of all, if you want to respond to that part. where Yeah, I'm not sure how that last point, we, where we differ on that. I served for 14 years, and I'm proud of my service. I'm proud that people elected me seven times uh, in Summit County um, uh, to, to represent them in Columbus. And when I was done, I didn't go back to the House because I didn't want to do that, like a lot of people do between the House and the Senate. I went back home and started a business, and I've been doing that for 13 years. So I don't really know what you're talking about. What, what I would say is, uh, first of all, um, first and foremost, what's the question was, how am I going to do it differently? What am I going to offer differently than Amelia Sykes? First of all, I'm going to live here in the district. Um, Amelia is so entitled, has never had a private paycheck in her life, uh, has never had a tough race, comes from a political dynasty family, and is so entitled and so comfortable in apparently what she's doing that she doesn't even think she has to live in the 13th district to represent them. She lives in Columbus, Ohio. Um, when she's not in, in D.C. So that's one. I won't turn my back on the district. Um, obviously, uh, big differences in um, with regard to fiscal policy, spending taxes. Uh, we, need a, we need somebody in Congress who is willing to stand up for their principles and has a demonstrated record of doing that. And um, I, um, uh, in the legislature, uh, stood up to, even to my own party when they tried to pass the largest tax increase in the history of the state of Ohio, both income and sales tax, uh, raise the budget by double digits, reform zero spending, no no spending reform whatsoever in the budget. The pressure was intense. Um, I was removed from the finance committee and replaced with someone who would um, raise those taxes. I was removed from all my top-shelf committees. And what I learned from that, Bob, is that you can spend your time in the doghouse, but the fact is you have to be you have to have the courage to stand up to the forces that be And if I can do that in Columbus, I can certainly do that in in Washington. And what happened to me after that was I became a more effective legislator. Uh, People started bringing me their bills to carry. People started listening to me on the floor. People started giving me the heavy lifting stuff. I ended up chairing the Health and Human Services and Aging Committee for the next seven years. I became more effective, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, more effective after they killed me uh, for the people that I represented because people knew that I was coming from a place of integrity and principle and that I was willing to take the pain for those principles, and that I wasn't trying to put one over on them. So um, you have to have somebody who's able to stand up, whether it's the special interests or your own leadership in your own party, and that is a huge problem in Washington, D.C. Amelia is just another one of those politicians that goes and falls in line and follows orders and does whatever the leadership tells them to do. Uh, and that is, that's really a major problem when we don't see any change in this country. 
Um, and I will just say, say also, I will stand with our police, um, and I will work with local law enforcement prosecutors and judges, as I did consistently as a legislator, um, to protect our communities and decide with victims and not criminals. And she has an absolutely horrendous record on that, turning her back on our community um, to this day. And, and her response to the Jalen Walker shooting a couple years ago is one of the reasons that I was motivated into this race, because I thought it was disgusting. And I don't know how much you followed it, but this was not a criminal. We covered it a lot on this program. This was not a criminal. This was a, a kid that was distraught suicidal everybody knew that this was suicide by cop all of the evidence suggests that based on his google searches and the the two separate chases that he led police on and his engaging with a gun with them very clear case she got up and lied she got up in front of live tv and said you know a black man can't walk down the street minding his own business and there's a place for that concern and a place for that um frustration but that wasn't it yeah and she turned up the heat when she should have used her leadership to turn down the heat, she played on the grief of a family and the anger of a community for her own political gain. And to this day, she still is calling for the end of the careers of those officers after they've been exonerated and an investigation into the police force for their practices. And I just think it's disgusting. It does nothing to make our community safer. And uh, we need an ally in Congress. We are uh, in studio this uh, morning with Kevin Coughlin, former state representative, candidate for Ohio 13 in the Republican primary. Chris Banweg, his opponent, is a Hudson County, uh, or excuse me, Hudson City Count, uh, excuse me, City Councilman. I've got one phone line still open for you if you have got a question. We're going to go to these questions here in a moment for these two candidates, but particularly if you are in 13, let us know and you will get priority. <clears throat> Chris, going back to, did you want to follow up on something there? Go ahead. Absolutely, Bob. And I know being asked for clarity. <clears throat> I'll say the difference that I'm referring to as citizen legislator is someone coming from the economy into the government and then back. Kevin, I know your history is that you served and served well in the House and then became a lobbyist for almost a decade. And after that, that's not true. And after that, that's uh, not true. But okay, okay. Well, you were a registered lobbyist for seven years. Not it is. That is not true. Not for seven years now. Well. it's that's in, not, that's incorrect. Okay, so it's in the record and the reference, and I've got it. I'll be sure. happy to share it. I'll later. be happy to respond. But after being a lobbyist, you started a small business that is a political marketing and consulting company, which lives in the political economy. I think having had a couple of attempts at runs after that, you have and always, to my perspective, you have and always have been pursuing political agendas, pursuing political positions. I don't see a time in your career when you got away from politics. So that's what I'm referring to, to clarify. Now, to take it further, we do need somebody. I agree with you. We need somebody who will stand with their integrity and make hard decisions. But the inference that I don't have that because I didn't serve in the Ohio House, I've been in the Marine Corps for 24 years. I've just attained the rank of colonel. I have made and wrestled with harder decisions than you could imagine in the air-conditioned house right so yes i believe that life and death decisions have helped me be able to make policy and budget decisions in the comfortable position of sitting in a chair i think i'm ready to do that kevin do you want to respond to the part about whether you've been a lobbyist or not i'll respond to both first of all uh, if it's different okay standing up to the powers that be in dc is hard it's it's a lot different it's a lot harder and if it weren't if it were easy then the people who are currently there in D.C., including, quite frankly, a lot of folks that have your background, would would do it all the time, and they just don't, 
Okay, so you need people who have a demonstrated record of actually doing it when they're on the hot seat, when they're on the ballot, when they have the accountability of being an elected official uh, and knowing that they're risking their political future. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> when I left the legislature, I started a marketing business. I registered as a lobbyist in Ohio, not federal, for a few of my clients because under Ohio law, if, you have, if you're paid by somebody and you have a conversation with somebody in the legislature about a public policy issue, you need to do that. There are many, many people in Ohio who are registered as lobbyists in Columbus who are not lobbyists, who do not practice lobbying. Every university president should do it. Every CEO ought to do it, even if they have a lobbyist on staff. My company hires lobbyists for our, for our clients when they need one. I do not lobby. I have never lobbied. I have never practiced lobbying. I did that to stay clear of the law so I didn't get myself or my clients in trouble. And after about five years, actually, uh, I uh, determined that I didn't need to do that anymore because we were utilizing uh, contract lobbyists to the extent that I wasn't wasn't having conversations with anybody or wasn't risking having conversations okay. with anybody. Okay. And did you want to respond to the second part? What was the second part? Well, you said you wanted to do both things. So I thought I already did. I did. I did the issue of... Uh, uh, he talked about decisions had to be made on the field of battle and those kinds of things. Yeah, I think so I responded to, to it. That. Okay, yeah, you did because it is different, obviously, uh, um, in uh, in a political. And, and look, my business, but, my it's to say, first of all, he, he said I'm political. I've never been a political consultant for anybody. I've never been paid to consult for anybody. We do a little bit of political direct mail among all the other direct mail that we do for realtors and businesses and trade associations, and it's probably about five percent of that business is political. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to support Republican candidates and get them elected. And I don't know where you've been for the last few years because you showed up for the first time asking to be endorsed for Congress in our party and nobody knew who you were or saw your face. So, so I, 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 I'm not going to apologize for helping Republicans get elected in some county and around Ohio. I can absolutely respond to that. And one, no, I didn't show up out of nowhere. I was fighting the enemies of our nation overseas and working in the actual economy in our nation. So I didn't come from nowhere. But two, I did not go into the Summit County Party, and you can check the recording and ask for an endorsement. What I asked for was them to endorse neither of us. Why? Because it divides Republicans in a primary and is unnecessary. It's unnecessary because we need to let the best candidate win. And the artificial influence of adding that in this primary may not let the best candidate win. If you need the party's endorsement and support to even stay competitive, then we're not looking at America meritocratic system so no i didn't ask for the endorsement i asked for them to endorse neither one of us well and that's what well, people who didn't you, earn the endorsement say all the time let, let me ask you both this question and it's kind of a, a cliche but um will you actively support the winner of this if it isn't you yeah and let me just and say by actively i don't mean just you know step aside and say okay he won and you of course i'll vote for him but i mean like you know continue to expose the difference between you, this party, your values, and those of Amelia Sykes and the Democrats. Yeah, and let me, let me just say, I, I, when I got in the race, and I was asked to run by the party leadership here in Summit County, um, but I was told that the endorsement was not a foregone conclusion, that it was an open question and that I needed to earn it. There's 100 people that make that decision, and I worked one by one and earned it. And all the, the other two candidates were free to work that process as well. Um, when we, when I sat in that endorsement screening and I was asked, as every candidate is asked, if you do not get the endorsement, will you support who we do endorse and drop out of the race? And I said, unqualified, yes, because that's what we do as Republicans. Um, drop when, out of the race before the primary? Yeah. That was the question? If I didn't get the endorsement. 
I, I was also asked if I didn't if I got the if I didn't win the primary, would I endorse the nominee in November? And I gave an unqualified yes. Chris did not answer those questions that way, and I hope he'll change that today. Okay, Look, Chris, can you tell me why why you didn't before, and what is your answer today? Absolutely. What what I will say is one. My answer was, would I endorse the primary candidate if they, when they won the primary, if it was not me? And I said, it depends, and it should depend. I think today the people, Republicans in particular, don't want to be spoon-fed. They want a good candidate of integrity and skill, and it depends on the behavior of the candidate. That is exactly what I said. And they said, no, no, you know, can we have an unequivocal yes? I said, no, because I'm a thinking person. Who in their right mind would say, regardless of what my opponent does, if it's an integrity issue, if it's a political issue, a professional issue, that I'm going to endorse them either way? No, I don't give that unequivocal okay. answer. Okay, slight, slight pushback slash follow-up on that, because I think most Republicans, when the Republican presidential primary was a thing, and DeSantis and, and, and Vivek and all these other people were part of it, will you support whoever wins? Yeah, I don't care who they are or how badly they may behave or how much I might disagree with them on A, B, C, or D. It's going to be a lot better than Joe Biden. That's why people would say, yes, we want you to pledge your support, because no matter what you see, and I do understand your point, but no matter what you see, the alternative is going to be that very, very um, dedicated Democrat vote on every crucial issue that would be coming from Sykes. Yeah. So when I say it depends, I will not avoid supporting the Republican Party. And I said that as much then. I will be a part of trying to win these seats. But my personal investment in my opponent will depend on his decisions and his behavior, just like any thinking person should. Okay. That's fair enough. Gentlemen, I do want to get some people on the air. Like I said, I gave them an opportunity. So we're going to go to Julie and Hudson. Julie, you're on the air with uh, Kevin Coughlin and Chris Banway, candidates for District 13 in the primary. Julie, go ahead. Hey, great. Thanks for taking my call. Um, My question is premised on that we're now in a political environment where we, the citizens, are weary, and that's putting it lightly, of career politicians. They failed us at the highest level, think Joe Biden. So my question is to both of the candidates, Kevin, you've been a state legislator, a clerk of court, a registered lobbyist, and a political consultant. So on Twitter, though, or X, you post, I am not a career politician. So it almost sounds like you feel that's detrimental. Then my question to Colonel Banwig, and again, thank you for your service, how does you not, having 25 years in the political arena, make you the better candidate? Okay. Thank you, Julie, for the question. Let's start, Kevin, with you, because uh, this this question of what a career politician is and isn't. Yeah. Well, look, bottom line is I have spent more of my adult life in the private sector than I have in the public sector, so I just reject the idea that I'm a – it's a bizarre charge. Um, I uh, – uh, look – I think that we have to have people who are in touch with the citizens. I have lived for the last 13 years in the private sector, feeling the impacts, meeting payroll, feel, feeling the impacts of regulation, uh, just like everybody else. And I would say that my view of the world is wider than it was when I left the legislature because uh, I didn't have a business when I was there. Um, and so my perspective is deeper and wider and I have it, and I have a different, uh, view of the world and, and, the impact that government has in, in ways that I didn't have when I, when I was there. So, um, look, at the end of the day, I still believe 
that what what matters in this race is number one, someone who can win in November. I've won seven toss-up elections. I flipped a house seat. I held a 50-50 Senate seat for 10 years. I did that by overperforming the top of the ticket and by winning in places or, or, or overperforming in places where Republicans don't do well. That is the formula that's going to be needed. We learned a critical let, lesson let, let two years ago. Let me jump in here ago. just in the interest of time, because you answered your question, I think, pretty well about what you believe to be a career politician. Chris, I think you also outlined your 24 years in, or 25 years as to how it benefits you, but just hit the other part again. Is he a career politician? I, I would say yes. If not a career politician, you've referenced Kevin being involved in political <clears throat> marketing and supporting politics, either employing or being a lobbyist. And, and I don't say that as an insult. I say it as now is not the time. That's part of why I'm here. I, when I look at the top issues that our nation is dealing with today, I've been in the economic side of life, in the, the open market. I've also been in the military and foreign policy side of our life. I've borne the burden of our forever wars and watched my brothers and sisters do the same thing because of failed foreign policy brought about by people who can't appreciate the impacts on Americans. Yes or no question, just because it's related to this, yes. not that it applies specifically to you gentlemen, but do you support term limits for members of the United States House and, and Senate? Yes or 100%, no? 100%. And I've already signed. Term limits? Commitment. Yes or no? Yes, and I've signed the pledge. Great. Dana is in Akron next. Dana, I've got Kevin Coughlin and Chris Banweg in the studio. What's your question? Hi. Uh, two quick ones. Um, why only tax breaks for the middle class? Um, my everyday life is burdened by taxes that are imposed on me in every facet of life. And related to that, fossil fuels. Um, what are you going to do to reduce the burden uh, that unlegislated, uh, unaccountable cabinet agencies impose on us, including dreams of green, um, dreams of green energy that uh, mm-hmm. won't power our prosperity? Okay, Dana, thank you. Chris, go first on this one. Yeah, absolutely, Dana. I appreciate the question. And middle class <clears throat> tax breaks is just one example of a litany of things that we could do across the spectrum of Americans. I think it's reducing the tax burden overall getting the dollars back into your pocket. The underlying foundation in your question about some of these green fancy things is they're not being driven by free fair market capitalism in our nation. They're being subsidized by government entities who have a driven agenda. They're not working because they're not in the interest of Americans. And I think we need to get away from subsidizing. So when you talk about the federal legislative um, organizations pushing these ideas, one, we shrink their size so that they can do what is core to them. We need a smaller government, and by reducing their size, we reduce their cost and their influence. We take those saved dollars and we leave them in the community or we return them to the community for temporary initiatives because we should not be, the government shouldn't be what you require to be successful in life. The government should be there to create an environment in which you can pursue your dream and make it a reality. So absolutely, I'm 100% aligned with your thoughts, Dana. Kevin Coughlin. Um, the only person who's voted for tax cuts in the race, and, and I will say that um, I, I'm for tax reform that lowers the burden on all people. Uh, and, and it's important, too, not just people, but also this may be unpopular, but we've got to have a competitive corporate rate as well. Uh, we've just got to be able to compete with the rest of the world and, and attract business here uh, at, in Ohio and around the country. Um, you know, look, we need we need to become more energy independent. It is not possible for us to become energy independent based on what we're able to produce, but it, we need to become more energy independent. We need to open up uh, the ability to do that. Uh, we need to let the market carry us forward rather than government mandates. Government cannot mandate 
technological breakthroughs and should not. Uh, and, but I would say that Hudson has pursued some costly Green New Deal uh, projects with Chris on council uh, and looked at those, including doing a green audit. And so I just think we need to be consistent and, and trust that we're going to be able to pursue that in Congress when, when we look at our candidates. No, well, that, I, I could respond to that because it's inaccurate. We did not pursue that audit, and I as well did stand in front of it. So I am being consistent, Kevin. Um, we are uh, at the top of the hour, so I kind of, uh, like a bad football coach, I've mismanaged my clock here a little bit. So um, I- I'm going to close this. We're going to go late to our news because I want to give each of these guys 60 seconds to answer one more question for me. And literally, we'll have to keep it to 60 so we can come back a little bit uh, uh, without too much damage being done. Chris, I want you to go first. I want you to, in your last 60 seconds, say something nice about that guy and then tell me why you are still the right guy in 60 seconds to win this primary. Go ahead. No, it's very easy for me, Bob. I think Kevin has committed a lot of his time and effort to trying to make this state a better place. And he has great interest in trying to make the government better for all of us. Now, I believe that I'm the better candidate. We both have very similar endorsements, Buckeye Firearms, Ohio Right to Life, federal legislators, community uh, community leaders. But the difference is a time and a place. And I think with the top issues we're dealing with, my particular experience, though not developed in the state house has been developed in fixing governments. So I'm very familiar with how to move governments forward. When it comes to results, I've not been recruited to multiple major transformations in organizations or special operation deployments because of my rugged good looks. It's because I deliver results. Kevin Coughlin, say something nice about Chris Bandwagon, and then tell me why you're the right guy, not him. Well, Chris has a very impressive uh, bio, and, and – um uh, I, I certainly, like anybody else, appreciate his service to the country in uniform, and uh, and he's he, you know he's got a very impressive background to to talk about and take before voters. Um, look, I, I, sometimes I wonder if we're watching the same election because everywhere I go, people tell me whether it is the inability to move anything forward, the inability to rein in accountability in the federal government, or even to elect a speaker cleanly. Uh, nobody thinks Congress knows what they're doing. And they're looking for people who know what they're doing. And this is the time for steady hands to go in who have a record of getting things done, who are steady, dependable conservatives that stand up for their principles. And that is why all three party chairs in the district are supporting my campaign and are co-chairing my campaign, why, why conservatives like Jim Jordan and so many conservative groups are doing so as well, and other people who have represented portions of this district in Congress as well, and the Summit County Republican Party, because they know that I can win in November. And they know that I'm a dependable, steady conservative that people can count on to get things done in Congress. Kevin Coughlin, thank you so much. You got Jordan in your corner. You got Vance in yours, right? That'd be a hell of a tag team WWE type of match. I would love to see that. That's well, my guy's a national championship wrestler. Okay, maybe wrong sport. <laughs> That's an unfair advantage. We got to find some marine. <laughs> okay, look at that. A couple of marines that a wrestling champ. And uh, wow, uh, Kevin Coughlin, Chris Banweg. I wish you both the very best. Thank you very much for coming in and for highlighting your differences uh, while also maintaining the. Um, I think the belief that the Republican candidate is the right candidate, no matter which of you it turns out to be. And I thank you both very much for that. Um, we're late to our news. Country. Visit NationalGuard.com to learn more about part-time service. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know... And do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? 
just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. All right. Hour number three getting underway a little bit late due to my uh, clock mismanagement. Uh, I'm that coach who took the time out at the wrong time, I suppose, at the end of a football game and uh, butchered the entire thing and didn't give us a chance to come back. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, we did run a little bit long with Kevin Coughlin and uh, Chris Banwag, and I kind of really not apologize for that because I thought it was important. Everything that we got out had to get out, and if that means coming back late, <clears throat> then so be it. It's a tough race. And by the way, if you just tuned in and you missed it, well, that's that's a problem. You're going to need to catch up. A little bit later on, about an hour after the show, you'll see at whkradio.com the interview I did with Jim Jordan in the 9 o'clock hour and the uh, hour-long that we just had in studio with Kevin Coughlin and um, uh, Chris Banweg, two very, very good and very, very different. You know, they're both conservative patriots, I believe. They're both truly, uh, the you know, have the right mindset for the job to be a member of Congress and to beat Emilia Sykes. I think they're both far superior for a ton of different reasons. Um, but they're very different people with very different skill sets and very different experiences. One of them has experience as a legislator. The other does not. The other one has the experience of being a fighter, quite literally, uh, and, and knowing you know what kind of strategies to take to win battles, and the other one does not. One is a political newcomer, and thus that fresh blood, that young, fresh idea blood that we got with so many other. Look at Donald Trump. Political newcomer won the presidency, for crying out loud, first race he ever ran. Um, you know, uh, Ted Cruz was a seasoned legislator and a seasoned leader, and he uh, he lost to the to the newcomer. They both had very different skill sets, or sometimes it works out. Uh, and Kevin Coughlin, you know, he is not a newcomer. He's uh, you know he's a veteran, but he is also a guy who took some time off from being in office. So does that make him still a career politician? Like I said, a lot of differences between these two guys, but a lot to like about both of them. Um, I can say that I think very very confidently that there's a lot to like about both of them for you too. So if you want to react to what you just heard, uh, you are welcome to do so. And if you want to go off the board and uh, talk about some of the other issues that we've discussed today, maybe even some of the specific issues that we talked about with them, we talked border, we talked foreign policy, we've talked, uh, we talked federal spending, we talked uh, uh, inflation and economy, we talked about crime, we talked about um, uh, you know, so many issues that matter to to the American people. If you want to talk about those, either with respect to what they said or on your own, by all means, 216-901-0945 or 888 uh, we can certainly do that. But, but uh, like I said, I stand by it. I think there is a lot to like about both of those individuals. Now, having said that... Um, my conversation with Jim Jordan in the first hour, and again, all of that stuff will be online at whkradio.com an hour after the show. My conversation with Jim Jordan was a little more, uh, I don't know, shall I say, 
I don't want to say frustrating. That sounds too hypercritical. It's frustrating for me because I am asking him to do something that is not solely his responsibility, and I feel bad about that. I talked to Jim Jordan about the border. I talked to Jim Jordan about um, Ukraine aid. I talked to Jim Jordan about the impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden and whether or not that is dead now because of uh, you know Smirnoff. I talked to him about President Trump's case in uh, Georgia in which a whistleblower has come forward to the Judiciary Committee on the House side that Jim Jordan chairs and the Fonnie Willis uh, uh, persecution of Donald Trump. We talked about a lot of things, and I got a lot of good answers on. The one thing we talked about that I did not get any good answers on was January 6th prisoners. And that frustrates me greatly. Um, and and I, I'm frustrated for two reasons. Number one is I want some answers and I want some action. But I'm also frustrated because I, I know it is not solely his job. Jim Jordan is the chairman of a committee. He's not the speaker. He's one out of 435 members of the House, 535 members of the Congress as a whole. He can't do everything himself. And it would be wrong of me to suggest that he can or should. But he's the guy that I have access to. He's, he's you know, fourth, fourth district. Uh, and he has been on with me every week for probably eight of the nine years, maybe, because we're going up on 10, that I've been doing this show on AM 1420, The Answer. And I've talked to him, so I, I have access to him. And for that, I am privileged and also very grateful. But it's a bad deal for him because that means everything that goes wrong in Congress, I take to him and say, how are you going to fix this? And in this case, it's not even something that went wrong in Congress. It's just something that is being done by the Biden regime and the criminal justice system in which they are completely um, violating the constitutional, the civil, and the human rights of, of J6ers who are being held in, in horrendous conditions and being treated in ways that would have the rest of us livid if we knew they were treating them that way in Russia. If Jake Lang was being held in a Russian prison, the way Brittany Griner was, if Jake Lang was being held in a Russian prison, and was treated the exact same way he's being treated in this American prison system, we would be demanding marching on Moscow. They're torturing American citizens, we would say. They're holding American citizens without trial, we would say. They're holding them with you know for over a thousand days, and there still isn't a trial date, and they're not giving them access to legal representation. They're tearing up. They're not giving them access to warm water and showers and deodorant and toothpaste and enough sustenance to remain healthy. They're putting them in freezing cold conditions, shackled three ways. They're torturing these people. We would be livid if this was happening on in, in, happening in Russia. Remember what Kim Jong-un and the North Koreans did to Otto Warmbier? We were furious, and rightfully so, to have an American citizen tortured and treated such a way by a, by a foreign dictator. 
If he did something wrong, remember they tried to say that he tried to steal a painting off the wall or something like that of the hotel where he was staying with the other students, and then that that's enough for a life sentence in North Korea, and then, of course, we know he ended up dying uh, in a North Korean prison. If, if, the, if the things that happened that are happening now to J6 prisoners in the United States were happening in those conditions, in Kim Jong-un's North Korea, in... Um, uh, you know, the uh, Ayatollah Khamenei's Iran, in uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia, in Maduro's Venezuela. If, if, if these things were happening in socialist or communist or, or Xi Jinping's China, how did I miss that? We would, we would be demanding that the United States be prepared to go to war to free the American citizens who are being treated in such ways. We would demand it. But since it's happening here, and it's the Biden regime that's doing it, we shrug. And by we, I mean collectively as a nation, not individually, you and me and people like Tom Zawistowski that we had on Friday who has just been trying to ring the bell and get people to listen to it and say, look over there, look what is being done to American citizens in violation of all of their rights. We're not shrugging, but too many other people are. And so when I get a chance to talk to somebody in Congress, <clears throat> it's a little bit unfair to them. Like Jim Jordan, I, uh, I put it all on him and say, do something. Um, he can't do it all. He can't do everything himself. He is in, I don't know, 15 different quagmires right now with respect to impeachment inquiries between, you know, uh, Biden and Mayorkas and these uh, uh investigations into the Burisma scandal and the China scandal and the, uh, you know, the Biden still dealing with the Russian hoax, Trump's trials and all of the illegalities going on there. I mean, you know, one person can't do it all. So I don't want to put this all at Jim Jordan's feet. But when I do ask him and I get just uh, well, we're we're looking into it as much as we can. I, I I'm not satisfied. And that's what makes this so frustrating to me. I'm not satisfied that something is being done. And it's not all on him, but it has to be on somebody. And and I don't know where to go for that. But just so you know, when I say that they're constitutional, they're civil, and the human rights are all being violated, I'm not just making that up. That isn't a list for the sake of lists. Their constitutional rights to a speedy trial are being violated. They've been held for three-plus years now, over a 1,000, around 1,100 days now without a trial. That is unconstitutional. They are they are allowed to have representation and to meet with attorneys and to prepare for their own defense and be in the right state of mind to contribute to their own defense, but they're being tortured mentally and psychologically with 23-hour lockdown as if they're in the secure housing unit at the Colorado Supermax. Seriously. That's how they treat America's worst and most notorious criminals. We're talking about the mass murderers. They go into Supermax shoe program. You know, that's shoe is SHU secure housing, you know, where they're in 23 hour lockdown. They get out uh, for a shower once a day. They get out for a, uh, you know, rec time one hour a day. Uh, it's, what are you kidding? That, that's what's being done to our, our political prisoners. Even if you do think that they did something horrific on January 6th, none of them are killers. None of them are rapists. None, none of them uh, shot anybody or harmed anybody um, that, that would warrant holding them without a trial. This is, this is tyrannical, dictatorial, authoritarian type stuff that's being done to American citizens, but because it's being done by American 
uh, uh, leaders and the American government, the American criminal justice system, the American prison system were okay with it. Nowhere else would we be okay with it. So the constitutional rights are being violated, their civil rights are being violated, and their human rights, because torture is a human rights, uh, uh, is, is illegal in, in, in the human rights, in the world of human rights. It's a violation of, again, I'll put it to you another way. The Geneva Conventions wouldn't let us to treat, wouldn't let us treat an Al Qaeda member, a, a member of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, a terrorist from, from, uh, from ISIS or from, uh, from, from Hezbollah or from Hamas. If they were in the United States being treated the same way Jake Lang and the other J6 prisoners are being treated, treated, it would be a violation of the Geneva Conventions. We'd be in, in very serious trouble on the global stage. But because it's Americans being treated this way, it's like, yeah, yeah. Shouldn't have gone to D.C. Shouldn't have aligned yourself with that orange man. Shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have uh, committed an insurrection. Too bad. You get what you deserve. 216-901-0945. Sorry, I'm just a little bit of riffing right now. Joanne is in Twinsburg. Joanne, go ahead. Let me get your call in before the bottom of the hour. Go ahead, Joanne. couple of things, Bob. First of all, the prisoners at Gitmo have more freedom. Yeah. Than the than the J sixers. Yeah, I mean, this they do. is ridiculous. Um, also, if I wasn't confused about who I was going to vote for before, thank you very much because now I'm even more confused. <laughs> I would love to hear from like Tanya or somebody else in this district if they're solid or if they're like me and are really conflicted. Because I have, I'm, I'm at a loss here. It's a I tough mean, race. Well it is a, a very, it is a very tough race. Like I said, they're, I think they're both very solid, and I think they both have, are patriots, and I think they both have all of the right ideals and ideas, both ideals and right. ideas. But they're very different people with different levels of experience and different skill right. sets. So I, you know, which skill set is yeah. the right I mean, one here? Like That's said, what I, we're all going to have to decide. I'm really conflicted at this point. I mean, I'm glad I've chosen to wait till primary day because I might take that long. Also. When you were talking about Newsmax this morning, yeah, I listen to I watch Newsmax a lot, and any time they have a guest or a Trump speech or anything where they talk about the election being rigged, Newsmax puts that disclaimer out. I think it's a CYA thing. I I don't think it's what most of the hosts on Newsmax think, but they have to say it. You know, look what happened well, to Fox and the lawsuits. I mean, I think that's yeah. what it is, but I hear it like several times a day. Well, that's cowardly. You know? That's cowardly. I well, mean, maybe, I mean, but I, but I get it too. I mean, you know. Does Newsmax want to bankrupt itself? Fighting well, well, no. But I mean, listen. I the it. only reason Newsmax is a thing right now is because Fox did that. Uh, you know, everybody said, well, Fox is, is, is caving in. They're giving these disclaimers and they're saying that they think that the election was on the up and up. I'm going to Newsmax where they're, where they're yeah, going to tell I'm, the truth. Now, Newsmax is doing the same thing. So, right. you know, it, it's I'm a not sell-off. saying it's right or wrong, Bob, yeah. but I got a feeling that's why it is. And it's not like just one host. I mean, you hear them all say. No, I know, I know that. I know that. Kelly, Bowling. I mean, they all say it. Yeah. Whenever they have somebody on that says the election was, yeah. you know. Well, Car- Carl, anyway, Carl like Higby, said, Carl Higby is the guy. Call and tell me what you think because I'm yeah. lost. Okay, <laughs> thank, thank, thank you so much. I appreciate the call, Joanne. Yeah, that was Carl Higby, by the way. And yeah, I get it. I understand if there is a CYA uh, component. From fourteen twenty, the answer. Giving you reason in the age of unreason. Always right radio with Bob France and the answer. 
Okay, it's 11.34 on this Monday. Thanks for being with us. We're going to continue phone calls until the uh, end of the show here in about uh, 11 minutes, I suppose. We ask Bill O'Reilly to take us, of course, to the top of the hour each and every day. On AM 1420, The Answer, he takes you to Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk takes you deep. Uh, and then into Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager takes you into Dr. G. Just uh, stay here. Always wear a radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Let's go to uh, Brexville and uh, Bob. Bob, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Go right ahead. Yes, Bob, I had a question for you. I, I just got my uh, official ballot. And under a prosecuting attorney, for the county, they just have a write-in. What do, that, you, what do you mean? What do you mean? They have they have a write-in. It says for prosecuting attorney, write-in. There's no name listed. Um, I'm not quite understanding that. Um, are, are you sure there isn't like a section before that that shows the names of the uh, candidates? No. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 Bob, hold on. I think I have your answer. Are you, did you pull a Republican ballot? Yes. That's why. There's, okay. There is no Republican. Uh, that's the, the, this is a battle between two Democrats, and, uh, and, and it's going to be either Michael Malley or Matthew Ahn. They're both Democrats in that primary. Okay. Um, and so that's, you know, if you wanted to vote in that, you, wanted, you would have to pull the Democrat ballot, ballot and vote for, uh, for Michael Malley. Can I write in Michael Malley? Not on a Demo- not on a Republican ballot. It would just be. I mean, you could write. You can do whatever you want. You could write in Mickey Mouse. You could write in Bob France or Seth Rowe over there. But uh, uh, it's not gonna. It's not gonna do anything. It would just be. Just it would be uh, invalidated. Okay. Is it is it the same for the judges at Court of Appeal, Common Pleas? Um. Well, it, it, I mean, there there are there are primary fights for for uh, uh, that are partisan that are again only going to be on that side. Like in Lorain County, where I live, um, I'm going to have uh, a judge battle on the, the demo, uh, two Democrats on a uh, on a uh, in a for a county for a court of common pleas uh, uh, seat, and I'm not going to get access to it because I'm pulling a Republican ballot. So it would be the same way, yeah. Okay, because the the reason I ask is. They show full term commencing, and they have different dates for each person. Um, well, the, yeah, well, that's because each person's term is different. You know, they try not to have, like in the courts, for example, uh, they, they're not going to have every judge's seat up at the same time. There has to be some continuity. It's the same thing on most commissions. Like, for example, the Civil Rights Commission that Peter's on, his term comes up at a different time than somebody else's does, so that the newbies come in there, and you don't have, for example, you don't have, say, five new judges on a court of appeals, and none of them have been there before. There has to be some constancy, so that's why they come up at different times. Okay. Okay? For me. Okay, Bob, I appreciate it. But since you brought it up, you gave me an opportunity to say, for the love of all things decent in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, vote for Mike O'Malley. Democrats or Republicans who are going to pull a Democrat ballot because we never did close the primaries in the state of Ohio, which I've been begging them to do, begging everybody I can talk to in Columbus to do. Since they didn't close the primaries, if you want to make sure that a George Soros-like prosecutor who does not believe in the existence of police, who does not believe in the existence of prisons and jail and punishment, who cares only about criminals and not victims, that's who Matthew Ahn is. He's running for prosecutor against Mike O'Malley. So if you want to make sure that we have somebody who actually, even though he's a Democrat, 
Mike O'Malley is a far superior choice because he actually does lock people up. He actually does charge juveniles with adult crimes if they do commit adult crimes, and the situation warrants it. Michael Malley has to be the prosecutor. If you want to pull a Democrat ballot and do that, I can totally understand why you would. My personal opinion would be, if I was a Cuyahoga County voter, and I'm not, I'm a Lorain County voter, I would still pull my Republican ballot and vote in the important races, like, for example, the Senate race, uh, you know, which, of course, is extraordinarily important all across the state. But if you've got congressional seats up for grabs and so forth, um, I would vote for my Republican you know, candidates that I want there, but I would at least do something and make a contribution to Michael O'Malley's campaign on the Democrat side. If, Ma- if Matthew Ahn unseats Michael O'Malley as the prosecutor in Cuyahoga County, Cuyahoga County will die. And so will many, 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 many members, citizens, and visitors of Cuyahoga County. They'll die too. Crime and punishment will be over. Oh, well, crime will not be over. Punishment will be over. Law and order will be over. Crime will be rampant. And I'm sorry. I'm just calling it the way that it is. Uh, Keith is in Lakewood. Keith, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, Bob. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hey, I just wanted to let you guys know uh, we do actually have a legitimate uh, write-in candidate for the on the Republican ballot for county prosecutor. Oh, lay, lay it on me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Anthony Alto, A-L-T-O, Anthony Alto. He's officially registered as a write-in. So I mean, we know it's a long shot, but if for some godforsaken reason Matt on gets in, we need an alternative. And so it's Anthony Alto. So if you did pull a Republican ballot, please, please write his name in so we can get him on the ballot in November. Good. Thank you for that information. I appreciate that. Because, yeah, most people kind of just think this is uh, whoever wins in the uh, Democrat primary is going to be. And if Mike O'Malley is that person, he will be. Uh, but if Matthew right. on does and something has to happen, then, then it's good to know that that alternative will be there down the line. So thank you, Keith. I appreciate it. Um, let's go to uh, Jim in West Park. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. You're on the air. All right, Bob. I, I like your rendition of Article 4, Section 4 that we hear during the breaks. But you left out the last part of the sentence. The United States should protect us against domestic violence. What do you think they're doing to Trump? What do you think they're doing to the J6ers and the mega supporters and the people who pray outside of uh, abortion clinics? That's domestic violence. That's domestic violence. You should include that in your, in your venue. Thank you. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. I can see that argument. I mean, you know, it's it's violence of a different kind, particularly, well, it is actually violence of that kind in terms of the J6ers. But to what they're doing to Donald Trump, it's a different kind. Uh, it's political violence, but it, it can have just as... Um, you know, of a deleterious impact and effect on him as a, as a domestic can. So I do understand your point. Thank you. Sally is in Berea. Hi, Sally. Go ahead. Hi, Bob. This is regarding the persecution of the J6ers. You would be shocked to know how many people in the general public that don't listen to conservative news sources don't have a clue. They look at me like I'm crazy, like, well, I never heard that. Probably because they never listen to sources other than mass media. So what they should do is leaders like Jordan and, of course, other leaders, whenever they talk about the prisoner in Russia that died and say, oh, he, he was persecuted, 
they should use that as a segue to say, well, guess what? We have prisoners too, and explain their their plight of not having trials in in yeah. inhumane conditions. So that's it. Thank you, Bob. You got it. I appreciate it. That's kind of why I talked about it at the top of the show today. One of the top issues that I talked about was this new sanctions, 500 new sanctions that Biden announced against Russia because Russia and Vladimir Putin killed a political opponent of their president. Well, uh, they're torturing uh, and in many cases leading to the deaths, the suicides of J6ers who are political opponents of Joe Biden's um, without, again, giving them their constitutional rights to a speedy trial or to anything resembling a defense. So, yeah, how do we pass judgment on and, and issue sanctions for another country for doing that which we are doing to our own citizens? It's a fair question. Charlie, Brownhelm Township. Hey, Charlie, go ahead. Hey, Bob. Thanks. I tried calling Friday. I wanted a happy fish, fish uh, bump Friday, but nobody else did. So I'm doing that on Monday. All right. Hey, I, I'll, I'll take it call. anyway. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.